Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Jessica Barr on today's episode. Jessica Sky Barr is a relationship and individual coach and founder of relationshifting.com. She holds a bachelor's degree in media studies and has an in-depth understanding of how the media impacts our lives and shapes our attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. Jessica is soon to complete her master's degree in mental health counseling so she can become a licensed therapist specializing in couples counseling, adult attachment, healthy sexuality, and intimacy disorders, including compulsive sexual behaviors, porn and sex addiction, and the partners and families affected by it. She is a feminist and activist who brings this important lens to the topic of pornography, sexuality, and relationships. She is also on the board of directors of Culture Reframed, a nonprofit organization founded by Dr. Gail Dines, who I'm going to have on the podcast soon, whose mission is to build resilience and resistance to hypersexualized media and porn. The combination of feminism, media studies, and mental health informs her critical perspectives on the myriad of ways digital sex and hypersexualization impact individuals, relationships, and cultures. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start with talking about feminism and why feminists should be opposed to pornography and why pornography is a feminist issue and also why it's a human rights issue. Can you start talking about that? Because there are so many feminists who claim that pornography empowers women. Yeah, I'm happy to speak to that because I think there's a lot of confusion and divisiveness in women and in feminism in particular around this topic. And I think there's a lot of misguided intention and a lot of misinformation. So I just want to start by reading a quote from Rachel Moran, who is a sex trade survivor. She was a prostituted woman in her youth, and she is now exited and has become an author and an activist. And she has a quote that says, there is not now, never has been, and never will be a feminist case for men to commercialize the bodies of women. So I think that's a really good quote that kind of summarizes a really complex issue. There's two different types of feminism that I think you're speaking to when you say the people who think it's empowering and then the people like me who think there's no benefit to the commercialization or commodification of sex or women's bodies. And the difference in language is that someone like me is called a second wave feminist. Another term for it is radical feminist. And radical simply means the Latin root of the word radical is uh, to get to the root of something. So radical feminists look at the overall system of oppression, which means patriarchy and how patriarchy oppresses women and children. Radical feminists really try to look at the root. The other type of feminists who maybe would argue that pornography or prostitution is empowering are typically referred to as liberal feminists, third wave feminists, choice feminists, or even sex positive, which I shudder at that. And I'll explain why later, why it's not sex positive. But there's major disagreement among these two types of feminism and people who are in these movements. So the third wave people who think it's empowering believe that if a woman is making the choice, no matter what the choice is, It is empowering just based on the fact that she's getting to make the choice. So they're looking at individual empowerment for the actual individual, whereas a second wave feminism like myself and Gail Dines and so many other people in this movement are looking at what's good for women as a class. So if I decide to be a stripper, 
or go into the sex trade. In the big picture, not only is it not good for me as a woman, it's not good for my sisters, it's not good for women as a class because it puts women at risk and puts out a message to society that women can be bought and sold and rented by men. And so our focus is on the liberation of all women. And so as long as there are women enslaved, my goal is to help free all women from oppression under patriarchy, not just go make my personal decision. For example, I wear makeup, but I don't call wearing makeup feminist. So this word feminism has really gotten conflated with a lot of other things and it's changed meaning. And we see that happening with a lot of things over time. It gets kind of co-opted and people redefine it and turn it into something else. But the original definition of feminism really speaks to women as a class and not the individual. Yes. As a radical feminist myself, I appreciate you defining that. That is awesome. Good. I just want to add too, you know, people get freaked out by the word radical because it does sound so extreme. But I like to just remind people that the second wave movement, which was the women's liberation movement back in the 60s and 70s, Gloria Steinem, and the women of that movement were second wave. They were very, very critical about pornography and sexual exploitation because they understood that when you have an oppressor class, which is men in a male supremacy or a patriarchy, buying and renting the bodies of the oppressed class, you can never have equality. It just doesn't work. <laughs> so that's really where we're coming from with this. I just want to add too that another word for radical feminist or second wave feminist is abolitionist feminist. So in other words, I don't think that the sex industry, and I like to call it the sex industrial complex because that's what it is. It's a multi-billion dollar industry and it includes pornography, prostitution, stripping, massage parlors. It's a big, big industry and the sex industrial complex is just this large thing that we need to look at from a broader picture and how it's affecting women all over. So in other words, if I have a sister who's getting prostituted or women who are being looked at as objects, how does that translate to me out in the real world, in society and culture? How am I going to get looked at? How am I going to be impacted, whether I'm in that industry or not? Yeah, and that's my goal here of Betrayal Trauma Recovery, is to liberate all women from misogynistic ideas and views and the oppression of what they should act like. And I put should in air quotes, right? And what it means to be a woman, like we can have a voice. In order to be a woman, we don't have to accept sexual coercion. We don't have to accept any form of pornography or anything that we feel uncomfortable about in our sexual relationship. And anytime any one of us stands up for our own sexual rights, we stand up for everyone. If we could hold hands around the world and stop sexual exploitation, it would stop because there wouldn't be anywhere else for it to go. Right. You know, I do think women have play a big role in this like you're talking about, but I'm a firm believer that until we address the demand side of sex buying, women will not be liberated because we know by the data and by the experts in this field who study prostitution and pornography that it is the most, generally speaking, the most destitute, impoverished, traumatized, vulnerable people on the planet are the ones who end up in prostitution, being trafficked, pornography, stripping. You know, when people argue for choice, like, oh, that's her choice. We have to really step back and define what choice is. Is her choice that she has to prostitute herself because she won't be able to feed her kids? Are those the kind of choices that we're looking at? Are we talking about 
sheer survival? And why would we argue for that choice? Shouldn't we be giving women more opportunities and we should be stepping back and looking at what are the driving forces that are driving these quote unquote choices and what is bringing them there? And why are they saying too? I mean, if we could just look at what brings people to the sex industry and what keeps people from getting out. It's horrifying, really. Like if people got really educated about this topic and they saw what brought women to this, aside from being trafficked, right, and being coerced and drugged and all that, what brings them there and then why they can't get out. The drug addiction, the Stockholm syndrome, the trauma, the feeling of they have no place to go and and the brokenness when, when you leave the sex trade. I don't believe it should be qualified as work. When you escape this abusive trade, the needs that you have to get back on your feet emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of it, that's a lot of heavy lifting. And there's not a lot of services out there. So a lot of women don't make it out of the trade alive. They take their own lives. They die of drug addiction or overdose. They are killed. They die of complications from injury, all kinds of health and physical risks. Abolition and feminists like myself, we don't believe that this industry can be regulated. The same way an abolitionist in the 1800s in this country would never say, we want to keep slavery, but we want to regulate it. They wanted it gone because they knew that this was something that was built upon oppression. It was built upon racism. It was built upon patriarchy. And so from a second wave feminist point of view, like myself, and Gail, and you, we see it the same way. You cannot regulate an industry that is built on exploitation, on inequality, on patriarchy. We see it as dehumanizing and objectifying other human beings, and it's a human rights issue. And even though the task seems impossible to stop all pornography, it is a worthy goal. And I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, okay, It's impractical to say, we're going to stop all pornography by next week, right? Which we know is impractical. I don't think that should keep us from saying our goal is to stop all pornography. And we are working toward that the best way we know how one step at a time. Because otherwise, if that's not our ultimate goal, whenever that happens, or if it even is possible, then we're leaving some of our sisters to be abused. Yeah, agreed. Culture Reframed is the organization that I'm a board member of is addressing pornography, online, internet pornography, as a public health crisis. If we address this as a public health crisis, we can build resilience and resistance to the hypersexualized media and to porn by educating people, by giving people resources, by arming parents and teachers and pediatricians with knowledge and information so that they can share it with the youth in their life. We can talk to regulators. Anything you would consider under the public health umbrella, Big Tobacco is a really good example and a model that we like to reference a lot because there was a time not too long ago where there was a huge divide in the medical field about whether or not cigarettes were bad for you (laughs) and whether or not they caused lung cancer. And some doctors were actually prescribing cigarettes to clients to help ease anxiety and relax them and whatnot. And we still have clinicians in my field, the mental health counseling and coaching fields today, who prescribe pornography for couples. And it's harmful. We still aren't there yet in terms of education. And so I think the public health approach is the best approach that everybody can get on board with. 
everybody can get on board with this because it's about looking at the facts, it's about the data, it's about the science, and it's about education so that people can make informed decisions instead of, oh, I'm just going to take this away and the person goes and seeks it underground or whatever. This is now an informed decision about your health and your relationships, which equates to your health because we know how important relationships are to health. Exactly. So with that, let's actually talk about the sex positive movement. We had a guest on one of our episodes talking about being sex positive is so cool right now. And in order to be a progressive, like educated person, you need to be sex positive. If you said, I'm not sex positive, then everyone would give you a very weird look. Can you talk about how porn is not sex positive and why? Yeah, there's so many reasons that it's not. And I can't even think of one reason that it is. But I'll start with first and foremost, it ruins people's sex lives. So that's very ironic that the more people use porn, the less sex they have with a real life partner. You've heard of porn induced erectile dysfunction. This is a new phenomenon we're seeing since the explosion of internet pornography. Young men are reporting erectile dysfunction that can't be explained by any other variable than their pornography use. They're otherwise healthy men who don't have, you know, a physical reason for having erectile dysfunction. So it's keeping people from actually connecting sexually. So there's that, number one. Number two, it is a product. It is scripted. It is not creative. It's very formulaic. It's very bottom line driven. It's about hooking the consumer it's about taking away their agency. If you want to talk about choice and agency and empowerment, it's the absolute opposite. They are hijacking our own ability to have authentic sex. So the template changes. If I'm a porn user, instead of me authoring my own sex life, my own sexuality, which is the most private, personal thing in my life, now it's being co-opted by this multi-billion dollar industry that is designed to change my mind, to change my template. It really takes people's power away. And you hear this from a lot of recovering people that once they stop using and they stop using for a while, they get their sense of agency back and they start to have their connection with their partner back and they can co-create a sexual relationship with their sex partner, which when you think about it, if you're sex positive, that's what that is. I came up with this quote, because one of the big arguments in the third wave sex positive movement is, it's none of your business what people are doing in their bedrooms, in the privacy of their bedrooms. And I like to respond by saying, if it's none of anybody's business what people are doing in their own bedrooms, why have we made it the business of the porn companies? Why have we made it the business of the pornographers to the tune of multi-billions of dollars? Mm-hmm. And also the pornography is directly affecting what's happening in people's bedrooms. Yes. So they have basically gone from saying it's nobody's business what I do to I've handed it over to a big business. And now what happens in the bedroom is run directly or indirectly by this multi-billion dollar industry that quite frankly has nobody's best interest in mind. Not only is it addictive, but we know it's horrifically, and this speaks to the feminist piece and to the human rights piece. It is horrifically sexist, misogynist, violent, brutal towards women. There's tons of data on this. I don't know how anybody could defend 
the content that's online today with any kind of positive or feminist lens, or even defend it as a humanist, somebody who believes in human decency. It's a type of hate speech, in my opinion. And that's one of the other arguments that I have is that why is this protected when they're showing so much hate? And Anne, think about this. If you were to show any other group of people of an oppressor class, like white people, for example, and you had a multi-billion dollar media industry that shows white people abusing a subjugated group of people, let's say an Asian group or black group or another oppressed or subjugated group of people, there would be public outcries. This would not be okay. But because it's women and because you're throwing sex in the mix, you're sexualizing the violence, you're eroticizing the aggression, now it's okay. But if you take away the sex, if you take away the sexual peace, all you see is violence and torture and brutality. And why are we okay with that? Especially because we live in a culture, actually a worldwide global culture, an epidemic or pandemic of abuse and violence against women. So when people say, oh, this is just fantasy, it's not. We know the numbers with Me Too movement that came out, you know, one in three. Every day I'm reading another article or more statistics about how violence against women is going up and rape and campus rape. And it is pandemic. People can't even keep up with it. And now we have this medium where men masturbate to these scenarios. These fantasies that men are masturbating to are real life nightmares for real women. And something is really, really wrong with that. That is like the most divisive thing you could do is to have this group of people, women on the planet, suffering at the hands of men with sexual violence and then make movies about it for entertainment and for men to masturbate to. The problem with the third wave liberal sex positive movement is they are not connecting the dots. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot say we believe women should be free of violence free of sexual exploitation and free of objectification when you support an industry that is based on all of those things. Yeah. I think that they are just purposefully ignoring it because every time you try to address it with someone in that camp, they just talk in circles. There's no resolution to it and they don't make any sense. And you can say this isn't logical, but they won't be pinned down because they don't want to give up their porn. No, that's just it. There's no real argument. There's no data. It's a very thinly veiled debate. I don't get far in those because I'll start asking real questions and I don't get answers. I just get, it's my choice. If you don't like it, don't watch it. You know, all the things that you could do to dismiss a public health crisis. Like if you don't like cigarettes, don't smoke them. Then you start zooming out and going, wait, now it's affecting everybody. It's affecting children. It's affecting our healthcare system and our taxes. And I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, well, and not to mention that cigarette in this scenario is a person. Correct. And that is a beautiful segue to the differentiation between sex addiction and every other kind of addiction is that the human being, in many cases it's women, are the substance that's being abused. And there is a big difference when you're using a person as a substance versus using a drink or a drug or a cigarette. So this is another reason why it's even more serious and it needs to be looked at as a human rights issue. I've also copied down another one of my favorite quotes. It's by Jean Kilborn. 
she did a series called Killing Us Softly, and it was about how women are portrayed in advertising. It's brilliant. If you can ever get your hands on it, it's a three-part series. And she said, turning a human being into a thing is almost always the first step towards justifying violence against that person. So there are a lot of women who self-objectify. There's psychology behind that, which I'll try to remember to circle back around to. But even if you say, you know, it's my choice to strip or it's my choice to do this or it's okay for women to step out and objectify, what we have to remember is that objectification is dangerous. And there's a lot of statistics on this. There's a great organization out of Australia called Collective Shout that researches this about how objectification hurts not only the person being objectified, but the person doing the objectifying. And it really does lead to violence and harm. And it changes the way we interact with each other, the way we connect, changes the way we view others and ourselves. It takes away our empathy because if the person is now an object, you are really distanced from that person now and you lose empathy. And this is the problem with pornography. So we are the largest wives of pornography users organization in the world here at Betrayal Trauma Recovery. So whereas we have lots of organizations that are fighting exploitation or sex trafficking or pornography, what we view ourselves here as is the in-home victims of these types of abusers. They're clicking on and masturbating to other people's abuse, and it makes them abusive in their own homes to their own wives. Let's talk about that for a minute. So I think we've firmly established that it is absolutely okay, and not only okay, but actually every single woman in the world should set a boundary of no pornography in their relationship. And they should set that as a human rights boundary and also as a self-respect boundary, right? Like I will not allow myself to be abused like this in my own home. I want to talk about sexual coercion for a bit. So it is our contention here at BTR that if a man tries to talk a woman into accepting his pornography use when she doesn't want it, or she states, I do not accept pornography in my relationship, and he hides it from her, that it is a form of sexual coercion. And he has not received her consent because he's not giving her the full information. So where he's trying to talk her into accepting his pornography use, that would be sexual coercion. And while he's hiding it from her, that would be considered that he is withholding her ability to give consent. Yeah, I think it's common. I 100% agree with where you're coming from on both of those. And I think it's common. The user tries to get around it by using these types of manipulation. The part about trying to talk your partner into accepting something that doesn't feel good to them and is coming between you sexually is definitely coercion and abusive because it can leave the partner feeling shamed or shameful. It could lead you to feeling like, if I don't do this, he's not going to be happy. He's going to leave me. You know, my authentic sexuality is not good enough. And also what's happening is there's a control issue. He's controlling the sexual narrative in the relationship. So there's not a co-creative sexual relationship between the two people who get to come together and be playful and creative and decide what feels good to both of them, what's mutually pleasurable. And so this is somebody who's saying, I want this for me, even though you've already stated that you're not comfortable with this. So trying to talk somebody into something as important as what their sexual limitations and boundaries are is a violation. It's a type of abuse and coercion, which those go hand in hand. And as far as hiding it goes, I mean, you guys know this more than anybody because you deal with betrayal trauma, which has to do with secrecy 
and lying and dishonesty, that will break a person and can break a person and it could ruin relationships and make it hard to trust again. I hear people talk about this issue of pornography. They say, what is the partner really angry about? The fact that her husband is using porn or that he lied about it? And I hear people say, oh, but that he lied about it. They lied about it. And I would argue that in this case, it's both. Because if my husband, which I'm not married now, but let's just say I'm married. If my husband lied to me about stopping off from work and getting a piece of cake because he's on a diet and he just fell off the wagon and he got a piece of cake and he didn't tell me about it or he lied to me, yeah, lying's not good. It makes you question people. It erodes trust. It's not a good thing. But if he's lying about sex and he's lying about something that is against my values, something that I've set a boundary on, something that has to do with masturbating to images of other women, he is seeking sexual stimulus outside of our monogamous relationship, assuming we've agreed on a monogamous committed relationship, then that is a different kind of betrayal. Well, it's also abusive. This lack of consent in saying, I know you want a monogamous relationship with no pornography, and so I'm going to hide that from you. That is coercive in and of itself and manipulative. And it's also, you are not giving her the information she needs to make the right decision and to give her consent. 100% agree that withholding information like that takes away her consent. And she is engaging in a sexual relationship with somebody who she does not have all the information. That she wants. She said flat out, I don't want this. And so he lies and hides it from her. I think this is extremely serious. And people are not taking it seriously. And it is an abuse issue. And people are kind of dismissing it or saying, oh, well, you know, he doesn't need to tell her or whatever. And I'm thinking, no, 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 you don't realize that this represents abuse and it represents abuse in every case where he's controlling the sexual narrative, like you said, and not willing to give her all the information that she needs to give her consent. It's a serious, serious abuse issue. It is an abuse issue. And I 100% agree. It is taking away that person's right to consent because they don't have all the information to give informed enthusiastic consent to their partner. And if women knew that their partner was masturbating to violence, to rape porn, to child-themed pedophilia porn, to anything that's now mainstream, mind you, on Pornhub, if we knew that our partner's sexual template was that, and that's what turned them on, and that's what they were masturbating to, we should have every right to know that so that we could say, I'm not sexually compatible with that person. I don't want to be having sex with somebody who is turned on by that. For lots of reasons. One, it's not sexually compatible because this is now crossing over into core values. I don't believe in violence against women, so I don't want to be with somebody who's masturbating to it. We have to get straight about when we meet somebody or when we're with our partner about what our core values are in general and also what our core values are around sex and what is our sexual compatibility. Because if somebody has a secret life when they're masturbating to these images, the bottom line is there's no compatibility there. I am so grateful for Jessica coming on. I love all women of different 
faiths or paradigms. Jessica is agnostic, right? Different ways of viewing this so that we can all see that when it comes to pornography, we are all on the same page or we need to be in order to combat this, not only in society, but in our own homes. So Jessica is actually going to come back to talk about how to bring up the topic of porn with someone that you're dating. So many of you are currently married, but you're talking with women who are single and like, hey, have you talked about their porn use? So this will be an important episode. So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on today's episode. My pleasure. Thanks, Anne. Jessica can be contacted at relationshifting.com. And for more information about the important work being done by Culture Reframed, visit culturereframed.org, where you can find many resources as well as their Parents of Tweens program. I will be speaking with Gail Dines, the founding president and CEO of the nonprofit Culture Reframed next week. So please stay tuned for that episode. I just purchased a book by Sarah Bessie called Jesus Feminist, and I'm going to be reading it. And if any of you want to read it too, and then we'll have an on-air book club and talk about Jesus Feminist and how we felt about it. Email me at ann at btr.org and say, hey, I'm reading the book too. I'd love to come on the podcast. We also love your comments. Please go to our website, btr.org, find this episode and comment. What are your thoughts about feminism? What are your thoughts about pornography being a human rights issue? I would love to know what you think. I will be speaking at the Coalition to End Sexual Exploitation Global Summit this weekend in Washington, D.C. If you're in those parts and you want to stop by the conference, I would love to meet you in person. Their website is endsexualexploitation.org. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please set a recurring monthly donation. Every single one of your donations helps us take this message to women throughout the world who desperately need to be educated about abuse and betrayal. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll down to the bottom, and click on Make a Donation Today. We've recently added yoga to our Betrayal Trauma Recovery group as a permanent session. Please go to our website and look at all of the different sessions that you can attend for the price of one regular therapy session. 17 sessions per week times four if the month is four weeks long. That's 68 sessions a month for only $125. It is the least expensive, most accessible way to get the best help possible. We are experts at this. All of our betrayal trauma recovery coaches have been through it. We use proven techniques to establish safety in your home. I really encourage you to go check out the betrayal trauma recovery schedule. As more women join, we add more sessions at no cost. So your price stays the same even though we increase the sessions. And during these summer months, accessible, frequent support is really important. I think summer is one of the toughest times. Women think, okay, if I can just get through summer, then everything will calm down in the fall and things will get better. For me, that's not what happened. It actually exploded in the fall. And so I suffered through summer thinking it would get better in the fall. So I didn't seek help when I should have and things got worse. So if this summer is starting to be tough for you, please join Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group so you can get the support that you need throughout the entire summer and start making steps toward progress now rather than waiting for the fall or waiting for things to calm down because they might never calm down. We'd love to see new faces and make new friends in Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. 
If you haven't yet and you're so inclined, please rate this podcast on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single one of your ratings helps isolated women find us. And until next week, stay safe out there.